Welcome to Difference Makers, where we bring you profound and enlightening conversations with remarkable people who make a difference through innovative and inspiring charity work. On this podcast, you'll hear the incredible stories of real-life Difference Makers, learn about the worthy causes and charities they support, and discover how charity work changes lives for the better. If you see a problem that you want to get involved in and help support, even if you feel like you can't make a difference, just, you know, step out in faith and do something. I think being faithful over time, you can look up, you know, 20 years from now and have made a huge impact. I'm Aldis Harris, and in this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with Sarah Kelly, CEO of Set Free, who is making a difference by rescuing children from slavery, providing clean water, hosting medical clinics, and planting churches. So welcome to Difference Makers, Sarah. We're so honored to have you here with us today and excited for you to share with our community everything about Set Free and all the good work you're doing out in the world. So before we get started and really kind of dig into it, can you just give us a general overview of Set Free and the work you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. So Set Free is a Christian nonprofit. It's based in the States, but we work internationally. And the overall goal is to provide freedom through Christ. And we do that through stopping child slavery, giving clean water, medical care, and planting churches. And you said you're located in the United States, but working abroad. Specifically, which regions are you working in? Yep. So we work in two countries in West Africa, Sierra Leone and Liberia, and then we also work in India. Okay. So I definitely want to get into all the specifics of the work, but just curious, why those three locations? Yeah. So we feel strongly called to go to generally places where we don't find others are working. Um, We actually got our start well drilling in Honduras. And after several trips there, really felt like we were doing good work, but especially we're based out of Greenville and GSP is a fairly small airport. It felt like every plane that we were getting on to go down to Honduras, it was us and a whole bunch of mission teams. Mm-hmm. And so we just really felt like those areas, a lot of lot of needs to be met, but there were lots of groups working in those areas. And so initially branched out into Liberia, which had just come out of a civil war, just, you know, the country was devastated. There was no infrastructure. Not long after that, they got hit again with Ebola. And so really focused on, we felt like we were called to go there, honestly, because no one else was. Got connected to another partner in Sierra Leone. He crossed the border to Liberia to kind of hunt us down. Um, So after connections, very similar story there. They had gone through a lesser civil war, but, you know, devastating nonetheless um, and really needed support. And when we looked around, we didn't see a lot of other organizations working there as well. So that's how we got into West Africa. India is actually an interesting story. That was never on our radar of you know, places we were interested in going. Our partner who we're now connected with oversaw a large group of pastors and was going and doing church planting in every village that he saw, he was running into the same problem. They didn't have clean water. And so he just did a general, I think, Google search of hundreds of nonprofit organizations giving clean water around the world, stumbled upon our website, emailed our founder at the time, asked for help. Apparently our founder, um, his name is Roland, was the only one who replied to that email and he told him no. Okay. But 
it was an answer. And our partner is one of those men of God who just will not be dissuaded from what he feels called to do. And so, you know, while we said no, he took that as a response and started, you know, continuing to pursue us to share information. And Roland really just felt like, all right, like this is something that we should at least explore. Um, So about a year later, took a plane over to India, met with him, saw all of the villages and the work that could be done and really just felt like that's another place that we should go. Persistence is key, right? It is key. Yeah. And don't take no for an answer. (laughs) So obviously that applies to, I'm sure, you, your staff and your founder. So if you wouldn't mind, could you tell us a little bit about how Roland uh, was inspired to found the organization. And I know there's a bit of a history there that I really would love for you to share with with our community about Water of Life and Set Free Alliance. And, and really, can you just walk us through the history of how Roland got this all started? Yeah. So he became a Christian later in life. He actually attributes his son's girlfriend at the time. Girlfriend got the son to church who then got Roland to church. So he was in his 50s before he came to Christ. And at that point, really just felt a calling of, you know, all right, I have this new faith. I feel like I'm supposed to do something. And there was a missions pastor, kind of a guest speaker one Sunday, who came in to share about water work that he was doing. He was partnered with another organization. And Roland just felt kind of a gentle nudging of like, hey, you could do that. And Roland kind of brushed it aside. You know, I have no interest in doing that. And it was a couple months later, heard this guy speak again and felt this voice was stronger of not a, you could do that, but felt, you know, hey, Roland, you should do -hmm. that. And so Roland went and, you know, talked to the missions pastor, got connected with another organization, went to a drill rig training camp down in Texas to learn how to do drill rigs. He's an engineer by trade, so Mm -hmm. kind of mechanical things come naturally to him. Learned how to do drill rigs. Again, I said we started in Honduras. Felt like we were doing the right work, but in the wrong place. Moved over to Africa, later expanded into India. In one of the trips to India, doing well drilling at that point, it was called Water of Life, really focused on well drilling, church planting, was on one of the trips going around visiting the villages and our partners took him to a rock quarry, a slate mine, where there were a couple hundred children working at the bottom of it who were held in slavery. And honestly, it made Roland angry of, Mm -hmm. you know, both why this existed in the world and then kind of angry with God of, you know, why, why would you show me this? You know, you should do something about this. And another one of those moments where, you know, there was a still kind of voice inside that just, you know, he felt like he felt like God responded to him and said, you know, I did do something I showed you. (laughs) And it's, it's one of those moments, you know, if you ever even see photos of, you know, people being held in slavery, it's one of those things that once you see it, you can't unsee it. Um, Well, Water of Life was not at a place organizationally where they could take on that sort of mission, but really felt like we should do something. So he talked to his local church. They had some meetings, ended up kind of 
spinning off another nonprofit, Set Free Alliance, that really worked in tandem with Water of Life for a while. So Water of Life was focused on well drilling and church planting. Set Free Alliance was started to really address the problem of child slavery in India. Hmm. And those two organizations worked side by side for a while until, you know, boards started having conversation. There was some, you know, leadership disagreements and changes. And also what we realized is that we had unintentionally segmented the two missions. And so when we talked about it in the States, it felt very separate that, you know, well drilling and church planting was happening over here, child slavery, you know, rescuing them. One of the goals is to reunite them with their families, really setting them up. If we can't reunite them with job skills and training so that they're, you know, have a successful future, that that was happening over there. When the truth is, when you got on the ground in India, it was very holistic. You know, a pastor might go into a village. The well drilling crew is there. More often than not, the drill, drill crews are actually staffed by former child slaves who have now grown up and have done some apprenticeship programs and are now trained and are operating the drill rigs. A lot of children in India who are taken into slavery are there because of debts that their families can't pay. It's one of the reasons that we're so successful in reuniting them is that parents don't often understand the terms of the loans that they've assigned. And so, you know, children are taken as payment under the guise of, you know, hey, you can work for us for a couple months. It'll pay off your debt and then we'll return your children back to you. Well, that's a lie. And their children are never returned. Or sometimes agents just come in out and out, kidnap the children. Oh, my God. So we go to reunite the children with their families, oftentimes in those same villages where we might be drilling a well, you know, planting a church. So it's very, it's very holistic. And then also from a business sense, we realized that we could save a significant amount of overhead by, you know, having one staff, one office system. And so it was two years ago now that the boards made the decision to merge Set Free Alliance and Water of Life. So that's how Set Free came to be. And how did you get drawn you probably, in some ways, were called to do this work as well. I'd love to hear your story and how you got involved in Set Free. Yeah, so I I think I've always had a passion for nonprofit work. I've always wanted to make a difference, and I've also been pretty headstrong. And so I'm not actually sure corporate America would like me with all of the <laughs> you know HR policies, <laughs> rules, and regulations. Um, but I've always felt this strong desire to make a difference. And so I actually got my start in Christian summer camping you know, during college, did the lifeguard camp counselor days, mm-hmm. that transitioned to an internship that then translated to a full-time kind of marketing and communications position. And I was very happy in that work. You know, there was one day where my job was to create the promo video. So I got to strap a GoPro to my head and you know, hike to a waterfall to jump in to get the footage. Like it was a great job. Oh, I was that's not cool. looking for another one. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And in the midst of this job, I also worked with a mentored a group of girls in my church, you know, starting in their freshman year. And it's my church's tradition in your senior year, we go on an international mission trip kind of before they go to college, try to broaden, you know, their viewpoint that, Hey, you know, the rest of the world doesn't always live like you do. And so I went with my church to a mission group in Guatemala. And I had been internationally before, but this was my very first trip where you couldn't drink the water or, you know, Mm -hmm. even brush your teeth without filtering it. That really just, you know, opened my eyes to the millions of people in the world that that's their 
everyday lives that, you know, the water that they have isn't safe to drink. And it was probably a couple months after that, that I got an email from LinkedIn, which I know is not the most exciting story, (laughs) but it just, it was for a communications position at Water of Life. And the fact that, you know, I just had this life experience it was a similar you know, job description in the area that I lived for an organization that was addressing you know, one of the problems that my eyes was just open to. Just felt a little too coincidental to overlook. So I shot my resume, shot my resume out, and a couple weeks later, here I was. So that's where you got, how you got started, but now you're the CEO. Yeah, that was another couple year process. And you know, I mentioned Roland, our founder. He's actually about to celebrate his 71st birthday. Oh, happy um, birthday, he Roland. He made it. Yeah. Um, He had made it a goal with his board by the age of 70. He really wanted to transition out. Now, to be honest, I don't know that he's the kind of person who's ever fully going to retire. He's not a, you know, sit on the couch or play golf kind of guy. I actually think his wife might kill him if he fully retires. (laughs) But knowing the life cycle of so many, you know, nonprofits or churches, to be frank, that you know, are founded by one person and then tend to take the life cycle of the founder. And he really felt strongly that this this mission, this calling was way bigger than him, you know, needed to long, long outlive him. And so in order to do that, wanted, you know, a really intentional kind of transition plan. And prior to me, I think had tried to search to, you know, find that person, but just nothing kind of felt right. So it was probably about a year into my work that he and I started to have started to have some conversations about what what it might look like to you know transition into his role as he stepped out. Yeah, what does that role look like? What is a day-to-day for you as CEO? Oh gosh, it depends on the day. Um <laughs> a lot of my work is honestly fundraising. So it's connecting to donors, talking to churches, talking to businesses, um, really, you know, sharing the work that we do and encouraging them to get involved. Another part, we work with in-country partners in all three countries that we work with. So a lot of phone calls, honestly, a lot of WhatsApp messages recently, um, an 11 hour time difference will do you in for phone calls. So a lot of WhatsApp messages, you know, checking in on how they're doing, what they need for us, you know, setting goals, kind of dreaming, talking about problems that they're seeing. Um, So lots of conversations with their partners. And then while we're a small team, there's five of us total, I do manage four people. So kind of checking in with them, making sure that all of my staff have the different tools and resources that they need to be successful in their areas. A little bit of everything or or maybe a lot of everything. Sounds like you're doing, you have a lot of different roles. Yeah, I think one of the things they didn't necessarily prepare me for as CEO is you wear an awful lot of hats, but I wouldn't trade any of them. That's great. I'm sure it keeps it also very interesting because you're probably seeing different things each day. Yeah, it, there's no there's no two days that are the same that that are good. And then in non-COVID times, there's usually two or three times a year where I'll travel to visit our partners and both audit, you know, and make sure that the reports that we're seeing are accurate and things are happening how they say they are. Um, but then also just, you know, relationship building and meeting with meeting with our partners and drill crews and pastors and encouraging them and letting them know, you know, there's a team team of people here in the States that are praying for them and supporting them. And again, kind of my favorite parts are being able to brainstorm and dream about what we can all accomplish together. 
Yeah. So talking about those partners that you're working with in these different countries abroad, I'm assuming these were relationships that Roland established, but now you're probably always looking to develop other relationships or grow, and then you're working with the local partners. Is that right? To make sure that the work is being done properly? Roland was connected with all three of our in-country partners, and it was one of Roland's Roland's philosophies that I've kind of continued is, you know, if you really want to look at, or if you really want to do good work, look at someone who's already doing it and then go help them. Mm-hmm. And so that was kind of key in picking our, so all three of our partners are pastors. They lead teams of pastors and they were, they were sharing the gospel and planting churches and making disciples long before we, we got involved. They had existing networks. They all just had really one problem in all of the villages that they were trying to share that they couldn't solve. And that was that all of the villages needed clean water. Mm-hmm. And so we came alongside them to support them by saying, you know, we can help provide the funding and the expertise and the drill rigs. You can get the crews because it's one of the things that's important for Set Free is that we we really don't want to do for others what they could do for themselves. It's important for us to empower the local communities. So, you know, when we started in Africa, we got partnered with, you know, the local pastors, and then they went out and hired, hired drill crews. So all of our, all of our wells that are being drilled are drilled by people who are native to, you know, the countries that they're serving. It supports the local economy. It gives them jobs often in areas where unemployment's really high. And then it also has the benefit of, you know, they they know the culture, they know the language, they can go in and, you know, communicate and they're way more effective than we could ever be. I'm very grateful that Roland started that. And then, you know, that's one of kind of my continuing principles is as we as we go into the areas, really, really support them and empower them as much as we can. So really, I'd say the bigger, the bigger kind of relationship building for me is really looking on the state side. So we've got, you know, a group of really committed, really committed donors. I think we as an organization, particularly speaking to India and just, you know, 1.3 billion people, just, you know, the scale of that country is huge. So our organization there is really limited by the amount of funding that we're able to provide. So that's a lot of my work of, you know, building connections and making new relationships in the states um, is looking for, you know, increased partners and donations so that we can continue to expand our work. I find that philosophy or approach so important. You're not giving a handout, you're giving a hand up to the people, the local community. You're you're empowering them to do the work. As you said, they're the best equipped to do the work within their own communities. I'm such a big believer in that from a nonprofit perspective, helping people, empowering them to help themselves and showing them the way. And I love that you're doing that. And as someone who's been in nonprofit for um, the better part of the last decade, I find I'm always back to wearing the fundraising hat, right? (laughs) Such a big (laughs) (laughs) part of what we do in the nonprofit world, because at the end of the day, If you get committed partners like you have on the ground, the only limit is the amount of resources that you can give to help drill more and help to um, do more work. And so from a fundraising perspective, how do you approach that? Do you have certain type of programs or campaigns? Do you have events from a fundraising perspective? What is your focus? I think one of the great things about 
you know, set free and we've got a very diverse mission. And so we've, we've honestly got people who are involved kind of across the spectrum. So an average well costs about $5,000 for a hand pump well. In India, we're doing some deep wells for $10,000. they are larger. They have a pump. It's really just because the water table is so much lower, so they have to go deeper. But per person, it breaks out about the same. So we have some people you know, who are very committed to those programs and we'll sponsor specific wells and then we'll give them customized reporting, you know, GPS locations, village information, you know, here's what life was like before they got clean water. Here's a glimpse of it, what it's like now. So we've got people really keyed in on water. We've got people really keyed in on the children who are being rescued out of India and, you know, whether it's one-time donations or there's a monthly support that will take care of a child each and every month. So we have you know people involved there. There are churches who either you know give out of their missional funds or will do you know special collections every Sunday. We've got some business partnerships and I would say businesses look different, really as many different businesses as you can think of. That's probably how many business partnerships we have. But that's, you know, anything from payroll deductions to profit sharing to, you know, encouraging their employees to donate, you know, lots of different ways leading up to we do have an annual event every year. And so, you know, there's sponsorships, there's the general, you know, come listen to a presentation, get your checkbook out at the end sort of event. But people come to these annual events because they do want to learn more. And when you make a presentation or show the outcomes, you know, the measurable outcomes, it is inspiring. I, I, you know, I obviously is part of my research to learn about your organization. I visited your website and it's chock full of information. I was really well done. And the outcomes and, um, you know, the work that you're doing is, is there for all to see, you know, for our audience to, to learn more about what you're doing and to support the mission, how can they find you? Yeah, the easiest way to find us is on our website. So that's setfreealliance.org. And then we're also on Facebook and Instagram. We used to be on Twitter, but that's not such a nice place anymore. So Facebook <laughs> Facebook and Instagram, um, both of those at Set Free Alliance. Okay, thank you. Let's kind of unpack a little bit or yeah, let's dig deeper into the areas of impact. So obviously, your organization is rescuing children, providing clean water, medical aid, I saw as well, and planting churches. And let's start there because I'm really curious about the term planting when you refer to churches. So can we can we start with planting churches and you can tell us a little bit about that? Church planting is usually the result of our previous works. So it's it's one of the overall philosophies of ours that we want to make faith real. And so, you know, it's important for us to share the gospel, but it's really hard, particularly in different cultures, to share the gospel when it's so foreign to everything that they've been taught before. Um, it's also really hard, I believe, kind of from a moral standpoint to, you know, share about a God who loves us so much, he would send his son, you know, here to ultimately die for us and then leave them with water that we know is making them sick or leave their children in slavery. Mm. And so oftentimes, you know, those different missional areas, whether it's water or reuniting children, rescuing them from slavery, providing a medical clinic for a village, those really open the doors for our, you know, pastors just to share who Jesus is a lot of times when we're there. 
it just comes up organically. You know, why are you here? Why are you guys doing this? That, well, you know, Jesus sent us and let, let me tell you about this. That then it usually starts is, you know, kind of those initial questions that lead into, you know, people wanting to learn more, kind of growing into weekly Bible studies that start off in, you know, lead to Sunday morning worship on a regular occurrence. Church in other countries is a lot different than the U.S. in that, you know, church often isn't a building. It's, you know, under a tree or in someone's home or, you know, honestly, kind of on a street corner, people just gather around and learn more in worship. Oftentimes a pastor will have multiple villages that he's pastoring, especially in the early stage, because these aren't, you know, I'm in the, I'm in the South. So I feel like I passed actually six churches on the way to my church on a Sunday Mm -hmm. morning. It's, you know, it's not the case here. A lot of times they've never even heard of Jesus before. And so, you know, a pastor will kind of, you know, on a bicycle, ride down a road from village to village and do, you know, several Sunday morning services or weekly Bible studies that rotate through and really just, you know, answer questions and let people explore their faith and teach and dive deeper until usually what happens in church planting is the Bible studies will turn to Sunday morning worships that'll grow. There's usually one or two kind of new Christians from that area that really feel raised up and called. And so they'll go through, you know, a pastor training program. They'll start taking over the church that then, you know, frees the initial pastor to go out and reach new villages. And then usually what happens is, you know, the brand new church in either the village market or, you know, they'll start, they'll start sharing and honestly end up planting churches in other villages. So it just kind of multiplies. So it grows organically out of the work you do. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. It's interesting because obviously there's a reason that you came to do this work and Roland was inspired to found this organization. And I'm sure the same can be said for your staff as well. And it is important when you are working with the people on the ground to freely and transparently share why you're there and what has inspired you. I am curious because we've talked a bit about the water issue and we've talked about rescuing children just because it's so for me it's so hard to put my brain around this concept of child enslavement these child work camps or this indentured servitude or whatever you want to call it can you just talk a little bit more about that and is it just specific to Sierra Leone and Liberia or India or you see it more or less in one particular area And what is the approach or the means by which Set Free uses or employs to free the children? So the rescuing children is something that we exclusively do in India. It's not as kind of pervasive in West Africa. Um, On a global scale, India has by far the largest number of people held in slavery. You know, kind of if you look per country, India is at the top by a long shot. A large majority of those are children. And one of the things you kind of have to understand when you look at India as a whole is you really kind of have to understand the caste system that is technically outlawed in India, but is just pervasive throughout the entire culture. And that's, you know, based on the belief based on 
you know, kind of reincarnation and previous good deeds or misdeeds that people are ranked higher than other people, whether it's water, especially child slavery, they are at the very bottom of the caste system, um, often known as untouchables, sometimes known as Dalits. And under the mindset, if you really believe, you know, in the caste system, the people at the bottom are there because they did something to deserve it, or they haven't done enough good things yet to earn their way out of it. And so I think, you know, sitting here as an American, it's really hard to wrap wrap your mind around it. If you can understand it, it it helps you understand slavery a little bit better of, you know, a lot of the times when I present, I get questions of like, well, how, how in the world could you own people? Or, you know, how could you treat people like that? But if you, you get into that mindset, it's, they are almost considered less than human and they've done something to deserve it. And so that's the way kind of across the culture it's treated. Again, we work primarily in in an area of India that has a lot of slate mines um, and a fair number of brick factories. And so we'll find children held in slavery more often than not. I think 71% of the time kids are there because their parents took out loans that they couldn't afford. And when the loan sharks came back to collect the payments plus interest when the parents couldn't afford it, the children are taken as payment. And then the children are also taken, made to work in these slate mines, resold various times. So, you know, the parents have no hopes of ever finding it. It's pretty brutal, pretty brutal conditions. If you can, if you can imagine, you know, kind of a like Canyon out West, not, not Grand Canyon scale, but just a Canyon Mm -hmm. out West. That's a lot what it looks like. You know, you're standing up, just instead of, you know, the red clay, it's slate. So it's kind of bluish gray, but just dug, dug deep. And there'll be a line of children at the bottom that hold or form a basically human assembly line that'll pass the pieces of slate, you know, side by side. There are crane operators at the top that will hook, you know, very large pieces of slate that will pull them out, you know, hand injuries. They often don't have, you know, shoes. So, you know, cuts and infections on hands and feet are common if the, you know, there's no, there's no OSHA regulation. So it's not, it's not uncommon for, you know, children to die because a piece of slate falls on them and they're crushed. You know, they're given really just enough food in order to be able to survive and, or, you know, not starve to death, you know, malnutrition, disease, runs rampant. There's no shelter. So sometimes the kids will just die from exposure. They'll work in the bottom of the pits. And then at night, they'll kind of, you know, curl up on a rock and try to get some sleep. Oh my God. So this just, is horrific. Yeah. Re- really horrific conditions. Um, and so we've gone in before and done, you know, rescue missions. Our pastors are usually, you know, we'll visit the mines. Also, the thing you have to understand, the business owners who own the mines aren't typically there day to day. And so that, you know, there's some supervisors that are there, but often, you know, the business owners are in the large cities. So there's not as much actual oversight as far as business oversight there as you might think. So our pastors will go in, they'll, you know, talk to the kids. We try to sneak in food if we can, to care for them. Um, we've done rescue missions typically around kind of different 
holidays where we know, you know, the leadership will be gone. So there's less a chance of us getting caught to go in and literally lower ladders down to the bottom, bottom of the pits and get the, you know, pull the kids back up. Post that, we've also had a fair number because we've been working in this specific area for a while um, that there have been, you know, lots of people, you know, business people who work around who have been familiar, who have come to know faith for themselves and can no longer can no longer recognize Jesus that they're learning about with, you know, the children that they see, you know, headed into work or in the area. And so now it's in the past few years, it's transitioned from us going in to rescuing them to different business people and supervisors in the area, really rescuing the kids themselves and taking them to our churches because we've now developed a reputation that this is a safe place for, you know, children to be. And so it's not, not completely uncommon that, you know, in the middle of the night, 60 kids might show up on the doorstep of a church because the you know, supervisor had a conscious of crisis and just can't do it anymore. Wow. This is unbelievable. I mean, it's hard to fathom that this exists in today's day and age. So your organization is trying, endeavoring to to free the children. Sounds like there are some locals and some business leaders in India who also believe they're that this is wrong and identify and recognize that this is wrong. What other support do you have in this work? It's hard because on a national level, it's very, very Hindu nationalist, which is what the caste system is built upon. When you get on the local level, there is some quiet support, but, you know, Culturally, if you kind of step outside the caste system, oftentimes you know, you're shunned from business opportunities. Friends and family might shun you. So we we do get quiet support, but it's often that it's very very quiet, very hidden. The bulk of our support comes from the states. We've got support from a few businesses that help us. The um, driller who company we use to drill our water wells there um, is a big supporter of us. But otherwise it's a lot of it's a lot of quiet donations. I will say a large, a large percentage, not a large, but it's growing in percentage of support is actually coming from within the children themselves. So I mentioned before, after a child's rescued, one of our goals is to be able to reunite them with their families. We're able to do that in about 50% of the cases. And the other 50% either, you know, their parents have passed away or we can't find them. Or in some really sad instances, we feel like there's a credible threat that if we reunite them, they'll just be sold into slavery again. And so in those instances, we won't reunite. For the children who can't be reunited, we care for them up until the age of adulthood. And it's really our goal, you know, not for them to hit adulthood and then just to be kicked out. We really want to empower them through different job training programs, different connections to where they can be a successful adult. And so we've had over 900 children now who have graduated these job training programs who are now employed. And when you've come out of slavery, you know, children who are still held in slavery, you know, some of them have 
brothers and sisters who were sold with them, who got sold into different mines that we haven't been able to rescue yet. And so I think the mentality for those children is very different. It's never something that we ask. It's never a condition of, you know, us doing job training programs or apprenticeships for them, but it's for kids who have come out of this, who are so grateful for the fact that they were rescued, they want to give back. And so I think, you know, in talking to a lot of American donors, a lot of times the budget mentality is, you know, well, here's how much I need, here's how much I can spare. And so, you know, charitable donations are kind of off the top of lifestyle. For the children who have been rescued, who are now working, that's really flipped on their head. Theirs is, okay, what what do I absolutely need? And then usually, again, it's never never something that we ask for. It's just something that they do. They are donating a large portion of their salary back into the program because they want they want us to have the ability to be able to rescue more children. That's wonderful. So they're they're paying it forward. They're giving back, and they obviously have that that experience uh, that, that they'll have to sadly live with forever, but they take that experience and use it for good to help other children. Yep. That's wonderful. That's it's very inspirational. Let's change gears a little bit and let's talk about, I would imagine for those kids that have been set free and are in a position later in life to give back, it's, I would imagine it's very rewarding for them to help other children how about for you and for your team? How does the work and your accomplishments through it make you feel? This job particularly, I think nonprofits as a whole, but especially here, you will have the highest, you know, highest joys of there was one time it was one of my early, early trips to India and we were just traveling around and one of the girls who was actually in college, she was away. So I had read her story, but I didn't think I would have the chance to meet her. They brought her back in because they had just rescued her little sister out of slavery. Mm-hmm. They were sold at the same time, you know, sold into different mines. We had rescued the older one probably six years ago, and she had no idea where her sister was, you know, didn't even know if she was still alive. Well, while I was there, we got the call that, you know, she had been rescued. So we called, called her sister. She flew in. And I mean, it is an understatement to say I have never seen such a happy human being just, you know, when they saw each other and reunited, you, you couldn't wipe the smile off either of their faces and just, just insurmountable joy you know, the looks of the, the looks of the faces of, you know, parents who never thought they'd see their children again, when we can reunite them with their village, running through water for the first time in a new village with, you know, a group of kids who've, the only water source they've known is a, you know, local stream that makes them sick, just, you know, just the biggest biggest joys, biggest success stories. On the flip side of that, it's also the job that, you know, will break your heart to hear of the kids who died from waterborne illnesses. You know, it's 
not uncommon for a child not to make it to the age of five just because they get so sick from the water they drink, you know, knowing knowing that we can't save the entire world right now. And so, you know, still seeing the huge amount of needs, seeing seeing the slate mines that we haven't gotten to, you know, just in the area that we're working, I know that about 15,000 more children are being held in slavery right now that Mm -hmm. we really want to rescue. We just need to increase the funding to be able to go do it and, you know, adequately care for them. So, you know, it, those are the people that keep me up at night and push me to continue to go forward that, you know, really weigh, weigh on your conscience and break your heart. But then, you know, seeing, seeing their faces when they're rescued and when they're able to, you know, be reunited, just again, the deepest of sorrows and the highest of joys sometimes in the same day. (laughs) Thank you for sharing that because you know, that, that kind of is lost on me. Sometimes I always focus or I try to focus on what my work in nonprofit and what my guests uh, who come on this podcast, what their work does for them in a positive way. But we do forget there are some there are some difficult times and there are some lows, and you see, and you, you're well well acquainted with this challenge with these children in, in slavery. And if this system continues, we'll never be able to free all the children until the system is broken. But the rewards and the joy you receive when you have freed a child, and when you have drilled a well in a community, versus knowing that there are still children suffering, it's got to be. Um, you know, it's got to be tough. But I, I do appreciate you also sharing that that's your inspiration to press on. And I hope our listeners uh, understand that there is great work still to be done and Set Free can't do it alone. We need to help and support an organization such as yours that's doing so much incredible work out in the world. Thank you. So I'm curious, when you came to this job, you have charity in your heart, I mean, clearly, but you probably learned so much through your work at Set Free. Is there something in particular that really now today you could say, wow, I didn't know that before coming into it, or this one particular thing was really eye-opening? I think there's a couple of things I've learned. I'll say one, one professionally of you know me learning to grow as a leader, and you know I've got a pretty type A personality. I really like strategic plans and I've learned oftentimes leadership can be messy and things don't always go as planned. And sometimes that's a good thing. So I'll touch back on that in a second. I think I've also learned, really, I was surprised at all of India I think, which I know sounds like a huge blanket statement, but I think I came in really not knowing much more than, you know, a lot of cultural stereotypes about India, knew about the food, knew about the Taj Mahal. My dad works in tech, so knew about, you know, the tech sector in India. But I had, I also knew a fair amount about, you know, Hinduism and the overall kind of religion of that, had no idea about the social implications you know, I had, I had heard about the caste system on a you know intellectual level, but had never thought through what that actually looks like in practice and day to day and how, 
how that would lead you to treat people and up until, you know, what villages are okay to live in and which ones are not. And then just the amount of children that were held in slavery and what that actually looks like on the ground is just not something you could learn from, you know, a textbook or we try, but even honestly, a website, I think it's, it's one of those you really, you almost need to see it to understand the size and scope. So yeah, India as a whole, I think I learned a lot. I think, you know, going back to me being type A in conjunction with India, I think, again, I really like, really like planning. Weirdly, like it's one of my favorite things when I, you know, I mentioned before, I really like talking to our partners and brainstorming and, you know, what can we achieve in the next year and then trying to transition that into, okay, like, what does that look like as far as a budget? And in order to achieve that budget, what does that look like as a fundraising plan? I really like seeing all of the pieces come together. Well, you know, COVID last year just (laughs) threw a wrench in all of our plans, mine included. Mm -hmm. Um, I think one of the lessons I learned from that is that oftentimes what you, what you see as a crisis can, can in fact be an opportunity. And so, you know, I'm not going to lie, COVID was hard, but it gave us, because we weren't doing so many, you know, in-person meetings, my calendar was a lot emptier. Our donors were all working from home and missing human contact. And so it was a really good opportunity for us to just make phone calls and check in on a human level on, you know, how people were doing, what we could pray for them. So really working on deepening those relationships One of the things that came out of that, again, that I learned to really look for the opportunities and maybe hold my hold my plans a little looser in my hand because, you know, God might have bigger things coming was during covid when India shut down hard and it wasn't like the states, you know, there was no unemployment or stimulus checks. I mentioned over 70 percent of the children we've rescued were there because their parents took out loans that they couldn't afford. Well, when the Indian economy shut down, these loans just became rampant. And so our you know, partner started texting me of, you know, hey, our pastors are saying they're seeing a lot of these loan agents in the villages. A lot of parents are taking out these loans really because, you know, they were faced with take out a loan or starve. There were no, again, no unemployment, no really other option. A lot of these loans have about six to nine month terms. So we were looking you know, the fall of last year being like, oh gosh, like we're going to have a huge problem when all of these loans come due and parents can't afford it. Like we really anticipated a huge increase in the number of children who would be held in slavery by the fall of last year. So I didn't know the answer to that. I just you know, went to our board, went to some of our church partners and just, you know, asked them to pray. And it was an idea through one of those prayers that our board came up and said, i I think we can do something about this. I think we can actually, you know, get ahead of this and prevent children from ever being enslaved in the first place. It's like, oh, tell me more. And so, you know, we had we had conversations. I called, had conversations with our partners, kind of tossed around some ideas. You know, what do you think? Do you think this would work? And the Child Slavery Prevention Program by Set Free was really born out of that. The idea behind that was that we could go directly to these agents, repay the loans directly. 
so that, you know, there was and received the paid in full paperwork because we didn't want later there to be any chance of them coming back and being like, well, actually, you know, you owe me this back interest. We're going to take the kids anyway, because as horrible as it sounds from a business standpoint, the children are way more profitable than paying off the loans. Mm. So we didn't we didn't want them, you know, coming back and any of that happening. So we get the paid in full paperwork. And then over the course of the year, the families can then pay us back the money that they owed. So we don't charge we don't charge interest, whereas before there were you know, exorbitant interest rates. And in some cases, if they aren't able to pay in cash, they can pay in rice, they can pay in firewood that we'll then use to you know, support the children that we're already caring for. And in this way, children never enter slavery in the first place. And so, again, it was one of the lessons that had COVID not happened, I don't think we ever would have come up with it. So while I would never wish this on anyone, you know, there are sometimes there are sometimes blessings that come out of crisis. And I think in these moments, you know, really trying to look and be aware of other opportunities instead of holding so, you know, white knuckled to these plans that you thought you were going to do. And it sounds to me as though, you know, this program that you've developed, it's proactive in the sense that you're avoiding the problem before (laughs) before it exists. Um, But also, if you were just to pay off the loan and tell the family, okay, we paid off the loan for you, it might enable, it could potentially enable some bad behavior. So they still have to pay the loan back. They can do so in a variety of ways. You're not charging interest. You're giving them uh, probably more time and various options to repay it. So I think that's wonderful. And again, like as you said, it was born out of the challenge that you face that all of the nonprofits of the world have faced during this global pandemic, but it's allowed you or or it's forced you to be creative and be forward thinking. So that's really, that's impressive. Yeah, thank you. And I think, you know, you mentioned before that, you know, if India doesn't change, you know, one of our goals is to end child slavery in India. And you're right, if we were constantly rescuing children, one, it gets on a monthly basis, you know, very expensive to you know, continue to feed and educate and care for a growing population of children. And then, you know, as long as it makes the business owners money and there's a pipeline of children who can be taken, it just, while we celebrated the wins, it felt like kind of this never ending cycle. Whereas you're right, this one, we could really be, be proactive. And if we can prevent child slavery from happening in the first place, one, it's hugely better for the child to never have to go through that sort of experience. But it also, you know, de-incentivize the agents making the loans. They're not as profitable for them and you know, slows at least the pipeline of children coming in. So mine operators have to start looking for more legitimate sort of labor opportunities. And so Really, I feel like this is going to be a critical step in kind of our goal of stopping child slavery is that, you know, if we can get ahead of it and preventing it versus always trying to play catch up to a problem that exists. It sounds, uh, and I don't know the whole, the history of the organization, but this has got to be one of the greatest achievements of Set Free. And that kind of takes me to my next question is, is there something for you, for Roland, for your team that resonates 
with you as this is one of our greatest achievements. This has the greatest impact in the work we do. I think this prevention program, we're a year into it. And so I don't want to be, you know, too premature, but so far just in the year we think, or we've estimated that we've prevented over 5,000 children from ever becoming enslaved. Wow. Um, yeah, so that's, that's a huge marker we're incredibly proud of. Um, we've now crossed the 2 million people mark of people who have received clean water through our wells. That was, you know, a giant milestone. That's incredible. We've now, there's 45,000 children that we've rescued out of slavery. So I think, you know, that's a milestone in itself. I'm really excited when we get to 50,000 um, to be able to cross that off. And then we are nearing, I think, 50,000 churches that have been planted so far. So just, you know, huge scale. I sometimes get both excited and overwhelmed by the numbers, but just, you know, knowing that each one of those numbers represents an individual person whose life will never be the same, whether it's they're no longer held in slavery, they have a church that they can worship at, they have clean water every day that they can, you know, easily access. I think just kind of getting it down to a person. So I'm most proud of all of our different offerings and the results that we've been able to accomplish in our 19 or so years of operation, but really every single, every single life that, you know, is valuable to God that I'm incredibly proud. We've had the honor of being able to impact. And you should be, those are extraordinary numbers. I had no idea. uh, Thank you. That's really amazing. So I commend the work that you all are doing. It's, it's making a profound impact. And I, and I respect what you're saying. Every, every life, every single life matters. And then when you take the totality of the lives you have positively impacted, it's, it's incredible. Yeah. Well, I think too, you know, if you ask for a favorite, it kind of feels like being asked to pick a favorite kid. Like, <laughs> so I know it can come off kind of blase of like, oh no, they're all my favorites. But seriously, like, all of their lives matter. So I'm incredibly proud of them all. And what's the hope? Like, obviously you're, you're, you're really doing some, some extraordinary work today, but is there Mm -hmm. a hope for in the next 12, 24 months where you want to see the organization go grow or just uh, get into some different areas? Yeah. So I've got kind of looking in the next five years, we've picked a specific area in each of the countries that we're working in. Um, For a couple reasons. One, particularly looking in India, that's such a massive country. If we can focus in on one area, then it feels like we're making some progress because we can complete it. Same thing in Sierra Leone. So looking at over the next five years, looking at every single village in that area will have access to clean water. They'll have a well that's been drilled. Every single village will have the option of going to worship in a church, either in their village or in a nearby village that they can easily walk to. So a church within walking distance. Specific to slavery, you know, I mentioned just in the area that we're working in, there's about 15,000 more children that are held in slavery. I would love in the next five years to know in that area we have eliminated childhood slavery, whether we've 
you know, prevented the increasing pipeline of kids coming in. And we've been able to rescue those that are held in slavery right now. So looking in the next five years, I would really love to knock out the districts that we're focused in on each one of our countries. Long-term hopes, I think it's a little bit of a pipe dream, but I honestly believe the greatest greatest sign of success of a nonprofit organization is when we're no longer needed. Mm-hmm. And so it's a really long-term goal, but, you know, always, always looking towards kind of self-sustainability. And so, you know, as I mentioned in the prevention program, families are repaying money back into the program, looking at three years, that will become a self-funding program. And so we'll have enough money based on repayments to pay off the next round of loans. So that one will become safe funding. The numbers are a lot bigger as far as child slavery, but I would love, and it's a goal that we're working towards getting to the day where we have had enough church partners from within India who are donating, you know, just as a part of their weekly offering between the church partners and the children who have been rescued, have gone through a job training program, who are now employed and are donating their salaries back, that there will be enough of those that they can fund the rescuing and caring of additional children who are rescued from slavery. So ultimately, every program and service that you provide would be self-sustaining. Yep, that's the goal. You know, specific to the well drilling work, we will pay, we being, you know, in the U.S., we will pay for a well to be put in so we don't charge the village for that water. But the ongoing ongoing maintenance and care is either up to the village. So we'll train them, you know, to take ownership of the well and here's how they do it. Or we will go in and charge for repairs again for that. You know, I believe if you've got some skin in the game, you'll take better care of things. Agreed. Um, I learned that with my kids, they have jackets that they have to wear for their school as a part of their uniforms. And they were in the lost and found every other day until the new rule was, if you lose it, you have to buy a new one. And wouldn't you know, they hadn't lost a jacket since. <laughs> Um, so I think, you know, I think there's a little bit of that, that if you've got some skin in the game, you'll, you'll take better care of things, but then also it provides more sustainability for, you know, our partners. If we need to go in and do a repair, a lot of them are, you know, simple seals or a pipe that are affordable for the village coming together and, you know, pulling their resources, something that they can afford. And then, you know, continues to kind of limit dependency on outside funds and foreign aid. You know, it's funny, nonprofits, the only industry that I know of, that if you do a really, really good job and you get things so that they're self-sustaining, you could actually put yourself out of work. But I think I, I think I think you welcome that. That would be a good problem to have. I if I have to go job hunting because my work here is done, that would be the best day. <laughs> my mortgage payment might not disagree, but that would be the best day. Uh, that's wonderful. I'm sure you would have no problem. Some you would get scooped up before you even had the resume polished up because <laughs> this is Thank obviously you. a tall order. But I love the goal and the, the 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 drive that you have and that you're bringing to this. You're committed to the work, and you you guys are really making a profound impact. So, again, I salute you. And just to kind of wrap this up, do you have a parting message that you'd like to share with our community? I think something that's just stuck with me again. You know, looking at the highs and lows, I think if anyone is interested in 
you know, getting involved, you know, ideally that would be supporting set free, but really getting involved in anything. I think don't, don't be daunted by, you know, such massive problems. I think, again, if I, if I think of the scale of, you know, child slavery in India or the world water crisis, I think it's really easy to get overwhelmed and think, well, like, gosh, I can't, I can't make a difference. But, you know, as I think our results have shown, we're not a large organization, but just being, you know, faithful and donating, you know, really what you can. We have donors as small as, you know, $5 a month that will provide clean water for one person every single month. So I think, you know, if you, if you see a problem that you want to get involved in and help support, even if you feel like you can't make a difference, just, you know, step out in faith and do something. I think being faithful over time, you can look up, you know, 20 years from now and have made a huge impact. Well, this is Difference Makers, and you, Sarah, are a real difference maker. Thank you for sharing your incredible story with our community, and thank you for making a difference through your inspiring work. Thank you so much. I really enjoy talking with you. On behalf of Difference Makers Global Community, I want to thank you for listening. And if you'd like to learn more about today's guest, visit differencemakers.org. There you'll find a dedicated page for each of our Difference Makers and a link to their charity's website where you can learn more about their inspiring work and support the mission. And for our readers out there, I have two books that I wrote that I'd love for you to check out. Crossing America for a Cure and Running the Coast for a Cure. These books chronicle charity adventures I did in honor of my niece, Jenna, who was born with a rare neurological disorder called Sturge-Weber syndrome. Both books can be purchased on Amazon.com and all profits from book sales are donated to Sturge Weber Research. Thanks again for listening, and remember, in each of us is the power to make a difference.